people. That's despite being a former member of the Russian parliament. But Ilya Ponomarev is the only Russian politician to vote against the annexation of Crimea back in 2014. And so he is in Kiev and he's joining me now. Um, welcome back to the program. We talked to you all those years back when, when, when you voted against Putin's uh, invasion back in 2014. Tell me what you're doing right now. How did you manage to join the Ukrainian forces? Well, you remember at that time uh, you asked me why did I do what I have done. And I said that it means war between Russia and Ukraine. And as you see now, unfortunately, I was right. And at that time, I said that uh, if this war would start, I would fight for peace, and that's what I am doing. That is extraordinary. So you, you believed all those years ago that Crimea and those parts of, of, of the Donbass region were, were not the end for Putin, that he would go further. Uh, absolutely. I didn't believe that uh, he would start the war this February. I will be very frank, I many times repeatedly said that uh, he would first take over Belarus and only then would go into Ukraine. But uh, he has made the suicidal step, uh, the very irrational step for himself, probably because he was very ill-informed about the uh, real mood of Ukrainian people. And now we see what we see, thousands and thousands of deaths. Uh, and uh, deaths uh, among Ukrainian civilians and Russian soldiers. Can you tell me, Ilya, what you see when you are anywhere near the battlefront uh, in terms of the casualties? Because obviously all sides are giving different, different numbers. And it's, it's interesting to know what's happening to the Russians if you're able uh, to, to, to see that. Can you? Do you have any good information, at least from your area, where you're fighting, on what the kind of casualties on the opposite side are? Well, my observation is that uh, each uh, Ukrainian soldier takes at least four lives of Russian soldiers. Uh, that's more or less uh, the uh, ratio. But unfortunately, the same number of civilians die at the same time. So as many Russians are dying, as many Ukrainian civilians. And that, that is horrible, and that's very much because of the situation in the Ukrainian skies, because there is no fly zone, and that's what kills people every day. And, uh, Ilya, we are obviously in Kiev, and there's, there's all sorts of different descriptions about what this battlefield, this urban battlefield, looks like. You know, is it stalled? Are we in a state of a stalemate around the capital? Do you believe that the Russians still want to encircle the capital? Or, or, or what can you see again from your analysis? I think that they will try to encircle the capital. Right now, uh, they have been pushed back uh, in the western and northwestern uh, direction. Uh, they have pretty much uh, stopped on the eastern and northeastern direction. Uh, I think that despite being uh, pushed back in the west, uh, they would most likely try to advance to the south and to encircle Kyiv uh, on uh, the right bank of the Dnipro River. But I uh, think that it's uh, very unlikely that they would succeed. They, they are trying to provoke a humanitarian catastrophe in Kyiv, Magnitude like they were doing in in Mariupol, but in Mariupol they physically. Ex 
exterminate the city because the city is smaller and uh, very much uh, uh, linked to the uh, to the sea. Um, uh, Kiev is a very large city, so it's very hard to bomb and to shell it uh, all together. But it's uh, possible to cut off uh, the food supplies, uh, to poison the water, to cut off electricity and and natural gas, the heating uh, of the city. And I am very much afraid that that is the uh, actual objective of Russian troops at this very moment. So what do you make of the Russian general from the Ministry of Defense, uh, you know, in Moscow, Sergei Rutskoy, who, who basically over the weekend laid out what looked like a change of plans? Do you see it as a change of plans or do you take him at face value that we've done what we, what we intended to do, we have weakened and, you know, more demilitarized the enemy, i.e. the Ukrainians, and now we're really going to just concentrate on what we really want, which is all of the Donbass region? Obviously, they are losing the war. Uh, that's for sure. And there is no way how the war can be won uh, by Russia. So it's only a question of uh, where uh, they can settle. And their only hope is uh, to try to save face by saying that they didn't want to uh, capture uh, Kiev, for example, which is not true. That was their initial plan, and we know this for sure. Uh, that they didn't uh, plan capture Odessa and Kharkiv, which is not true, uh, but that they wanted just to expand the territory of so-called people republics in, in the east of uh, Ukraine in, uh, in, in Donbass. Uh, and here very much is uh, uh, dependent, the, uh, we are very much dependent on the position of international uh, community. Uh, if Ukraine would be uh, synchronously pushed into the uh, ceasefire both by Kremlin and by Washington, uh, they may try uh, to create a new set of so-called Minsk agreements and uh, to capture the territory and, and to keep this territory uh, for an indefinite uh, period of time. But the spirit in the Ukrainians right now is that uh, uh, we need to prevail, we need to win this war, and that we have all the capabilities to win this war. It's now a matter of price, and this price is very much dependent on you guys, whether you would help us uh, to eliminate uh, the uh, jet fighters, the bombers, and the missiles in the, in, the sea, in the skies, or we will do it ourselves. Um, Ilya, what about, I mean, it, it is odd that a Russian, a, a not just a Russian, a Russian parliamentary member would come over here in the, I mean, I know you've been living here for a while, but how, how did it, how did it, um, how did you get the Ukrainian military to accept you in their ranks? And are there any other Russians that you know of anywhere around where you are fighting as well for, for this side uh, Ukraine? Not, uh, not where I am, uh, but in general, uh, there, there, there are numerous Russians in, in Ukraine fighting. Uh, there were numerous Russians who were coming to join Ukrainian military and uh, volunteer groups uh, back in 2014. Uh, I believe there are several thousand of them. Uh, there is one regiment uh, which I know uh, next to Kiev, which is uh, fighting on uh, uh, the Ukrainian side uh, uh, against uh, the invaders. But uh, the question is very simple. We think that the key to freedom in Russia right now is in Ukraine. Uh, if we are victorious here, if we will defeat 
Putin here, we will win uh, Russia. That's very much like German anti-fascists uh, were doing back in World War II. You know that the Chancellor Willy Brandt, for example, the leader of German Social Democrats, he was fighting uh, within the Allied armies in Norway against uh, uh, German fascists. And that's not because he was anti-German, and I am not anti-Russian. I am pro-Russian, but I am anti-Putin, and we will kill the bastard. Well, you have written recently that you don't think you'll be, quote-unquote, on this planet um, in another year. But it is fascinating what you say because you're fighting for your own country, to liberate your own country via Ukraine. That's obviously the one thing that Putin really fears. One of the reasons many Russians and other analysts say that he, he just doesn't want Ukraine to be free and democratic and independent is because then ordinary Russians will start asking why it's not okay for them also to be free and democratic. Do, do, do you get that sense? Is, is, that, is that where we are in your country, in Russia? I think so. Uh, Ukraine is very much the Achilles tendon for Mr. Putin, and his propaganda uh, uh, all the way down was portraying uh, Ukraine as a failed state. Because he was saying, ah, you see, Ukrainians have made uh, their revolution, and they are failing. And you shouldn't do the revolution here in, in Russia because you will fail as, as Ukrainians did. But we are not failing. We are developing here. Uh, the, the country is very actively moving forward. Without that war, we will be moving forward way more rapidly than it was before. Ukraine has all the rights uh, to change their leadership. We, we had the previous president, now we have a new president because we wanted to change. We wanted a new set of reforms. We wanted a new direction of development, and we have done this. If you would travel across the country, you would see how well the infrastructure in Ukraine has uh, uh, developed uh, during uh, the three years of uh, President Zelensky, for, for example. And now these uh, uh, Russian soldiers, which are coming with their tanks, into the streets of uh, Ukrainian villages, they're saying, wow, guys, you have asphalt here. We don't have that much in, in Russia. Uh, you live well.
both sides signaled progress from talks in Istanbul. Moscow saying it will drastically reduce its military operation near Kiev. But a skeptical President Biden saying, quote, we'll see. And the fears among Ukraine's negotiators of being poisoned. Also tonight, the FDA and CDC authorizing second COVID boosters for adults 50 and older. As that Omicron subvariant now becomes dominant in the U.S. Tracking a potential multi-day outbreak of severe weather, Al Roker is here. The new report, more than seven hours of former President Trump's phone logs during the Capitol riot are missing. And just revealed when Jared Kushner will testify before the January 6th committee. And the historic law signed by President Biden today, named in honor of Emmett Till that many say was long overdue. This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Good evening. It may be too early for the world to hold its breath, but we start tonight with what could pass for a glimmer of optimism coming out of the war in Ukraine, specifically from around a negotiating table in Istanbul, where Russia announced it will drastically reduce military operations near Kiev and Chernihiv to increase trust. Trust is in short supply, and as Russian missiles struck elsewhere, President Biden reacting to the Russian claim warily, saying, we'll see. American military officials saying signs of movement may just be a repositioning of Russian forces after failing in their attempts to take Ukraine's seat of power. British military analysts say Ukrainian fighters were seeing some success with localized counterattacks to the northwest of Kyiv, but cautioning Russian forces still pose a significant threat to the capital. Also tonight, President Biden speaking to key allies, affirming all are committed to raising the cost on Vladimir Putin. Richard Engel starts us off tonight from eastern Ukraine. The new talks between Russia and Ukraine began with deep mistrust. No handshakes, but after four hours, the most significant progress so far. Russia's deputy defense minister announcing Russian troops would drastically reduce activity in central Ukraine, around Kyiv and the city of Chernihiv. Ukrainian officials saying no foreign troops, all have to leave Ukraine. But that Ukraine would negotiate on the future status of Russian-backed separatist areas in Donbass, leave open the issue of Russian-held Crimea, and critically accept neutrality, not pursuing NATO membership, in exchange for international security guarantees. But is it real progress or a trap? Russia only agreed to scale back in areas where it was already suffering heavy losses. And in the east, Russia continues to bomb civilians indiscriminately in Mariupol and in Kharkiv, where today Andre was recovering in the hallway of a hospital. Only there because Russian bombs blew out the hospital's windows. Andre says he was escaping his home when suddenly I heard the whistle and then I lost consciousness. Badly injured in his leg, he says he somehow managed to get his wife and daughter into their car. But as they were leaving, Russian forces hit the moving car. His wife, Tatiana, 24 years old and studying to be a hairdresser, told him, I'll be with you forever. They would be her final words. Andre was recovered by Ukrainian troops. His injured daughter was taken by relatives. He has no idea where. His wife's remains are still in the car. Too dangerous to reach her. I, I can't even imagine how that must feel. 
I also can't express what's happening inside of me. It feels like a dream, a nightmare. But I can wake up while my wife cannot. He only has one picture of her with him, but he can't bear to look at it. <laughs> Richard, the president today signaling a bit of skepticism. He says he's not going to read anything into the Russian statements until he sees what their actions are. Well, I think here, Lester, there's even more skepticism than that, with many people believing that this is just a way for Russia to buy time so it can rearm its troops and move them from where they haven't been terribly effective around Kiev and bring them out here to the east. And I can tell you, in this city, the Russian incoming fire has been more intense tonight than in previous days. All right, Richard Engel, thank you. Let's go now to the side of those high-stakes talks. I'm joined by Keir Simmons from Istanbul. And Keir, I understand there were not many signs of trust around that table today. That's right, Lester. There were many headlines made by the talks in the building behind me. One of them sparked by a startling warning from the Ukrainian foreign minister telling Ukrainians in the room not to eat or drink or touch any surfaces for fear they could be contaminated with poison. And a Russian oligarch was invited by the Ukrainians. Most of the proposals came from the Ukrainians. Neutrality, a new long-term plan for Crimea, and a new strategic stability pact with Ukraine where the West would defend Ukraine's safety. Of course, all of this, Lester, has to be agreed by President Putin. And tonight, the Russians are saying a meeting between President Putin and President Zelensky is a possibility, something they've ruled out until now. Lester? Encouraging to know talks are underway. All right, Keir, thank you. As the war goes on, some of the first Ukrainian refugees have now made it to the U.S. after overcoming obstacles at the U.S. border that impacts all asylum seekers. Antonia Hilton has that story from California. This is now home for Sofia Inachuk and her three children. Adjusting to a new life in California with relatives they had never met until a few weeks ago. We all had life, beautiful life. Oh, happiness and friends. It feels like everything's changed in the matter of a couple weeks. Yeah. They fled Ukraine three days after the bombings began, heading for Mexico. I have uh, family and uh, friends in USA. But Sophia was turned away by Border Patrol twice. How did that leave you feeling? That moment I was really destroyed. The U.S. border is still officially closed to asylum seekers because of Title 42, a public health policy put in place during the Trump administration that remains under President Biden, denying entry due to COVID. On her third attempt to enter, attorney Blaine Bookie, who was working with a Haitian child, saw Sophia and helped her get an exemption. Every single day that passes, it becomes more and more absurd for the administration to claim that Title 42 has any basis whatsoever in public health. For months, the Biden administration has been under pressure to end Title 42. Immigration advocates hope it will be lifted in early April, restoring the asylum process for all refugees. What I'm very worried about is all of the families, just like Sophia's, from Haiti, Cameroon, El Salvador, uh, other countries that are languishing. Officials expect an immediate uptick in refugees trying to enter. Many are waiting in shelters along the border, hoping to make an asylum claim as soon as the policy ends. Sophia is grateful she and her children are safe, but her heart is still in Ukraine. I want them to stay safe, to stay alive. I prefer for all those guys that are dying 
there are always mothers that are that will not see their sons anymore. Antonia Hilton, NBC News, Alamo, California. All right, let's turn out of the COVID threat. Today, the FDA authorized a second vaccine booster for older Americans, but many remain hesitant about getting the added protection, even as concern grows over a new variant. Ann Thompson with late details now. Older Americans have another chance to roll up their sleeves. The FDA today greenlighting a second booster of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for anyone 50 and older four months after their first booster. Think of the fourth shot, the second booster, as really helping bring you back to those same levels that you had to protect against Omicron. The FDA also approved a second booster for the immunocompromised, including transplant recipients, people undergoing cancer treatment, and those with chronic conditions like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. The age range for that group, 12 and older for Pfizer, 18 and up for Moderna. Is a second booster a sign of failure on the part of vaccines? Not at all. The second booster is just a reminder that vaccines are incredible, but they naturally decrease over time. While cases are declining in the U.S., the rate of decline has slowed. Today, the highly contagious BA2 variant is the dominant strain, accounting for 55% of new cases, a 20% jump in one week. But so far, boosters have been a tough sell. Of the 217 million fully vaccinated Americans, fewer than half, just about 97 million, got the extra shot. How much impact would this have on the spike if fewer than half got the first booster? It won't have as much of an impact on the spike itself. What it will have an impact on is how many hospitalizations and unfortunate deaths we will have. By boosting antibodies to reduce the severity of COVID. Ann Thompson, NBC News, New York. The January 6th committee's investigation is coming to a head tonight on multiple fronts with reports of a seven-plus-hour gap in President Trump's phone logs from that day and two more of his former advisors face being held in contempt of Congress. With more on all that, here's Garrett Haig. The January 6th committee taking aggressive new steps to secure cooperation from critical witnesses, fighting to enforce their subpoenas, by voting to recommend holding two more top Trump aides in contempt of Congress. It's very important for us not to let people just blow off the Congress of the United States. Senior aides Dan Scavino and Peter Navarro have each claimed the executive privilege over their conversations with then-President Trump. They refuse to show up. Um, you can't just say, I'm not even going to bother to come. Uh, if you believe you have a claim of privilege, you come. Mr. Trump standing by his false claims about the election in a statement responding, Republicans must get tough and smart and not let them get away with the crime of the century. The DOJ has not taken any public action on a December contempt referral for Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows, frustrating Democrats. The Justice Department also has a similar responsibility to take this seriously because this was an attempted Cool. Committee members now debating whether to request testimony from Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, after her text messages urging Meadows to fight the election results became public last week. And seeking to fill in the seven hours of blank space on White House call logs and diaries from the afternoon of January 6th, reported by the Washington Post today. Overall, where is this investigation right now? We're still in the investigative phase. We're still gathering evidence. Uh, we're still chasing leads. We're still asking for interviews 
On Thursday, the committee expects to land one of those key interviews. Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner scheduled to appear. Lester? Jared Hake on Capitol Hill. Thank you. We're watching for severe weather tonight. Tens of millions at risk of violent storms and tornadoes over the next couple of days. Al Roker is tracking it. What's the latest? Well, right now, Lester, we are looking at a wide swath from Des Moines all the way down into Texas. Currently, 20 million people at risk. Strong winds, damaging hail. Tornadoes are possible as this makes its way. We're really concerned tomorrow. Damaging winds to 35 million people. Strong, long-track tornadoes. Hail as well. As this system pushes to the east tonight, we're looking for those storms ramping up from Texas to Missouri. Tomorrow, the destructive line from Chicago down to New Orleans, almost 900 miles. And then Thursday, scattered storms likely in the mid-Atlantic. In fact, we are looking for 21 million people at risk Thursday, stretching from New York all the way down into the panhandle of Florida. We're talking anywhere from three to four inches of rain. Could be flash flooding, but the thing we're most concerned about, Lester, is strong winds and these nighttime tornadoes. All right, Al, thanks for the update. In London, Queen Elizabeth made her first major public appearance since testing positive for COVID-19 last month. She joined her family at a memorial service for her late husband, Prince Philip, who died last year at age 99. The Queen was escorted by her son, Prince Andrew. His first public appearance says a judge dismissed a sexual abuse lawsuit tied to Jeffrey Epstein, allegations he's denied. Up next, inside a city preparing for war amid fears that history will repeat itself. More now on the war in Ukraine and the urgent preparations in Odessa, where volunteers are bracing for the fighting to reach their doorstep. Molly Hunter is inside the port city tonight. This is a city on the brink of war. The famous port city is not only on Russia's wish list for its strategic location on the Black Sea, home to Ukraine's Navy, but also for its cultural heritage. Now, we can't show you any of the military positions. We can't show you the checkpoints at almost every single intersection. What I can show you is the sandbags, the tires, the huge hedgehogs. This military, this city is fortified in the historic city center, and they're ready for a fight. Today, we visited a defense training facility, our blacksmiths, our boot camp, all volunteers. Igor last fought in the Russian army in Kazakhstan in the late 70s. After all these years, he says, he's starting from scratch. He never thought he'd have to pick up another gun. But when exactly the Russians might launch an attack, no one here quite knows. I believe that it can defend me even in one hour. Nikolai Bukansky is running a volunteer hub until recently a trendy food court. Oysters and champagne. I'm Jewish, so this is the second time uh, genocide in my family life. The first time they tried to kill us because we were Jewish. Now they want to kill us because we are Ukrainian. But we are strong. That's our home. Defiance runs throughout the streets of Odessa. When was this built? 30 years. In 1930? Yes. And below them, this bunker, last used in World War II, is a web of tunnels. Huge. It's much taller than I thought. It's reopened for those iron. choosing to stay. This is where you come during the air raid sirens? People here bracing for impact. Molly Hunter, NBC News, Odessa. And up next as we continue almost 70 years after the lynching of Emmett Till, the new law that is long overdue. Finally, history made at the White House today with the signing of a law named for Emmett Till that at long last makes lynching a federal hate crime. Kristen Welker on a day that has been decades in the making. 
a lifetime ago, but a moment that has haunted the family of Emmett Till and the nation for nearly 70 years. This was the old time. I mean, you can't, you can't forget that, you know, you just can't. In 1955, Till was only 14 years old, visiting relatives in Mississippi when he was accused of whistling at a white woman, then kidnapped, beaten, and brutally murdered. His killers never convicted. His mother insisting on an open casket so the world could see what had been done to her child. Reverend Wheeler Parker, the oldest child seen here with Till, is Emmett's cousin. Parker is the last living relative to witness the abduction. What do you remember about that moment? I remember hearing the men talk about 2.30 in the morning. I said, we're getting ready to die. These people are going to kill us. Today, Reverend Parker was at the White House to bear witness once again, this time history being made in his cousin's name. I just signed in the law the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. President Biden signed the first law that makes lynching a federal hate crime, passed unanimously in the Senate this month. Racial hate isn't an old problem. It's a persistent problem. Congress had tried and failed to pass anti-lynching laws nearly 200 times for more than a century. The Emmett Till law imposes a prison term of up to 30 years on a person who commits a hate crime that results in death, serious injury, or that includes kidnapping, sexual abuse, or attempts to kill. And lawmakers who worked on the bill say it would apply to cases like the 2020 killing of Ahmaud Arbery. The 25-year-old black man who was killed by three white men, Arbery's killers, were all convicted of federal hate crimes. It took 100 years, over 100 years, but it tells us that there's hope. Today's signing, a testament to a teenager never forgotten, a step forward in civil rights long overdue. Kristen Welker, NBC News, the White House. And that's nightly news for this Tuesday. Thank you for watching. I'm Lester Holt. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night. Thanks for watching our
efforts to oversee the Oscars are pushing forward with their review of Will Smith's open-handed slap of Chris Rock. Oh, wow! Seen by 16 million people on television in the U.S. and fueling tens of millions of searches online. Set to meet soon, the group could sanction or suspend Smith's membership or revoke his Oscar. But even Harvey Weinstein and Roman Polanski kept their awards after they were kicked out of the Academy. This is not the first time craziness has happened on stage. Former host Whoopi Goldberg is on the board. There are big consequences. There has to be. Uh, well, yeah, because nobody, nobody is okay with what happened. With the slap becoming a late-night punchline. It is Monday, unless you're Chris Rock, because I'm pretty sure he got slapped into next week. Smith didn't apologize to Rock on stage Sunday night, but later did on social media. Violence in all of its forms is poisonous and destructive. My behavior was unacceptable and inexcusable. I would like to publicly apologize to you, Chris. I was out of line, and I was wrong. Releasing it via Instagram, I think the damage had already been done. It had been a, t a near 24-hour period before he had said anything on the matter. While Rock has yet to speak publicly, tomorrow he's set to kick off a series of sold-out shows. In a post today, Jada Pinkett Smith called this a season for healing. Smith's mother speaking to the ABC station in Philadelphia. That's the first time I've ever seen him go off. Tonight, the lingering shock, the mea culpa, and the potential consequences. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News. Thanks.
isn't the same as it being secure. The soldiers moved into Irpin cautiously, despite, in the president's words, they've liberated the town. Is, it, is Irpin liberated? Is it free? Have you reclaimed Irpin? Maybe, maybe. So, so. Only so-so, they tell us. This commuter town near the capital has been the focus of intense Russian attacks for more than a month. None of these soldiers were taking anything for granted, despite the first major Russian concession since the start of the invasion. So the area is clearly still not secure. And they're going in to try and find out just how much further the Russian troops have been pushed back. The sounds of war rumbled on whilst the peace talks continued. Under Ukrainian martial law, we're not allowed to show this location. But any scaling back of Russian military operations around the capital come at a tremendous cost, with terrible destruction done to small towns like Irpin, which has been bombarded for weeks. Those still holding the lines around the capital are very skeptical about any cessation of hostilities. How many times have we heard about a ceasefire, the first fighter says? It's always just our side which sticks to it. Then we get attacked and we have to reply. The second man says the Russians haven't stuck to any agreement so far. The first time we've set up a humanitarian corridor in Irpin, he tells us, they just attacked the civilian convoy. There are still civilians being taken out of the embattled town after more than four weeks of being trapped there. Many of them are elderly and not in very good health, those too scared to leave or with nowhere to go. Thank you, all of you, she says to the emergency crews. She's gently guided to a rest area. She can hardly carry the few belongings she's managed to take out with her. This has been a terrible ordeal for them all. She's still clearly shocked, barely able to speak. They've been living with almost constant attacks all this time. Do you have any place to go? Anyone who can help you, she's asked. I don't have anyone, she tells the emergency worker. I don't have anyone at all. Her husband and her have been sheltering in their basement for a month. She gulps her tea with sheer relief. It's her first hot drink for weeks. <laughs> They've had no electricity, gas, or water, and drank from their well with their food stocks running out. Any scaling down in the fighting comes twinned with so much heartache and suffering too. She tells us she's really worried she won't ever see her daughter and granddaughter again. The realization is really tough for her. Some said they'd been held captive by the Russian troops, herded into homes and used as shields to prevent Ukrainian attacks. When they came into our house, they took people from all around and put us all in one basement, Galina tells us. There were about 40 of us. And then around the house, they put one tank on one side and another tank on the other side, and a third in the yard. They've lost so much amid so much trauma. Our Irpin was so beautiful, Alice says. It's all completely destroyed now. There's plenty of destruction elsewhere, too, in several villages surrounding the capital. This one, east of the country's main city, was apparently retaken two days ago, after much fighting and a lot of shelling. 
The military hardware now in Ukrainian hands is paraded as evidence of how the Russians have been beaten back. The offers by them to radically reduce some of their military activity will be viewed by the Ukrainian troops as an offer wrung out of them due to these successes on the battlefields around the capital. Alex Crawford, Sky News, on the outskirts of Kyiv.
Welcome to the interview here on France 24. Our guest today is Leonid Volkov. He's the top aide to jailed Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny. He joins us from Vilnius in Lithuania. Thank you very much uh, for being with us. My pleasure. I want to have your reaction uh, to the words used by the U.S. president during his recent visit to uh, Poland. He described Vladimir Putin as a butcher, and then in a speech he said, this man cannot remain in power. The U.S. administration then walked back those remarks that regime change was not its objective in Russia, but do you read it that way? Don't you think that it's maybe a change in the perception of Vladimir Putin at the very top in Washington? Well, a long expected change. Of course, I completely second everything that President Biden said. Mr. Putin is indeed a butcher, a war criminal, a terrorist, and indeed he can't remain in power. The problem is that we have been explaining this for years, and uh, people poisoning, Navalny poisoning, uh, hundreds of political prisoners, annexation of Crimea, and downing of Boeing MH17 were enough. Angel Merkel once famously said in 2014 that Vladimir Putin is, quote, not in touch with the reality. The world knew he's detached from the reality, and the world didn't act accordingly. The world waited for eight years, which, to a lot of extent, allowed the current tragedy to happen. In Ukraine, things are, are moving. Russia is seemingly uh, changing its position. It announced that it would drastically reduce its military presence against the capital Kiev and also Chernihiv. Uh, obviously, this remains to be uh, seen, but do you sense uh, that maybe Vladimir Putin is uh, reading the writing on the wall which says that he cannot win that war in Ukraine and that he may have uh, blundered into this war? Well, Vladimir Putin was clearly playing a blitzkrieg. He wanted to be in Kiev in 72 to 96 hours since the beginning of invasion. That's why paratroopers in Hostomel Air Force, that's why uh, tank, uh, tanks sent some speed uh, to Kiev in the very first day of the war. He failed. It's already clear since many weeks that his blitzkrieg uh, failed. He admits it only today, too little too late, because enormous damage has been caused, enormous amount of blood has been shed for nothing. So how does Vladimir Putin now explain why did he destroy so many Ukrainian cities, why did he kill so many civilians and soldiers and Russian soldiers? I, I can't imagine. I mean, his propaganda machine is very strong and very capable, but even for Putin's propaganda, this will be kind of quite a challenge to explain that Yet again, everything is going according to the plan. That the plan initially was not to invade Kiev, but only to take over the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, and so on and so on. Of course, propaganda will now try to do it. They will try to be, well, persuasive, but I hope they will fail once again. Do you think uh, the Russian uh, people uh, will also uh, read it the way you read it, despite all the propaganda, and we've seen uh, uh, how uh, some social uh, networks are being uh, shut down, some uh, media are being shut down uh, in, in Russia, but do you think the Russians will realize that something went wrong and that the regime is not as strong as they might think it is? Well, of course, 
Russia's refuge, 140 million people, very diverse, very diverse also by their media consumption. We can't judge like Russian people as a whole. Some of them will stick to the propaganda up to the end, as some Germans were stuck with the propaganda till May 1945. But some of them are now starting to realize what's happening. And it's actually a very important front of this war. There are three fronts. Of course, the military one is the most important, where Ukrainian armed forces are uh, protecting their country. But also there is an economic front, where like sanctions and pressure is being applied on, on Putin to stop this war. And of course, there is an information front, where we are fighting, for instance, trying to break through the propaganda to bring the actual uh, bring the perception of the actual situation to as many Russian people in the country as possible. Because if there will be no support for war internally, also soldiers will not be fighting. Soldiers will refuse to fight. And of course, for Putin, it will be much more challenging to keep his grip on power if his war is not anymore supporting within the country. And I would say that we are also, we feel that we achieve, we are able to achieve a lot of progress, if not breakthrough on this front, because there is a shift in opinion of Russian society, a very visible shift in the last few weeks. Right. Uh, I want to go back to Alexei Navalny. Last week, a Russian court found him guilty of embezzlement, contempt of court. He was sentenced to nine years uh, in jail. He had already been sentenced to uh, two and a half uh, years. Uh, Navalny uh, is supposed to serve his new sentence in a quote-unquote strict regime jail. Uh, this means much harsher conditions. Uh, there have been reports that he is already being harassed in jail, so a very uh, simple and dire uh, question. Do you fear for his life if he goes to such a prison? Yes, of course. I mean, he is in custody of that very people who tried to kill him a year and a half ago. And during the last year, we expected that the only protection is the publicity, like that people are talking about Alexei Navalny and what he's doing. So now, with the war occupying very naturally, of course, all the headlines and overshadowing the Navalny story, we feel he's more endangered than ever. And that's why it's so important that we are talking about him and we are not forgetting about him. These nine years, though, are just the legal formality. Everyone knows, everyone knew from the very beginning, his sentence is effectively a life sentence. The question is, whose life? will survive Putin or Navalny. Navalny is Putin's personal political prisoner. And when Putin's gone, Navalny's released. I believe that Putin, when he decided to start this war against Ukraine, he actually very much shortened his term in power, and so he very much shortened Alexis Navalny's uh, prison term. Uh, but do you think that in the meantime he is in real danger? Yes, of course he is. And the world should keep an eye on him. Right. Uh, you have uh, kept an eye on Putin's uh, riches. Uh, the, uh, you, you revealed uh, a while ago, uh, just a few days ago, uh, some links to uh, between the president and uh, the Sherazad, a very large yacht, uh, saying that uh, uh, the crew uh, was made up largely of Russian uh, security uh, forces. Do you think that it is important uh, to continue uh, making those revelations, which are, of course, denied by the Kremlin. It is, of course, very important. If 
because it helps uh, to fight on this second economic front. It helps to identify Putin's weaknesses. It helps to uh, find out where the leverage is possible against him. Well, our most famous investigation about Putin's palace on the North Sea shore actually revealed how small the man is. So he had like, he had 20 years of unlimited power in the richest and largest country in the world. He could have built like, you know, the best university of the world or the best network of Cape Cod. But he has chosen to build a posh palace with, you know, gold everywhere and red carpets and so on. It says so much about his personality. And this understanding of Putin's personality, along with interiors of this enormous yacht and all other luxury items he has, gives a lot of help, gives a clue to how actually the West should deal with him. Right. Should go after his money, because money is so important for him. Right. Uh, I mean, do you think the West knew uh, what you have been revealing and chose not to put it out on the table, maybe until now? Yes, of course. For the time being, the West enjoyed billions of US dollars being pumped from Russia, like being stolen in Russia and especially in the West, enriching Western economies. Billions of dollars buying uh, villas in Cotazo and yachts in Germany and properties in Mayfair in London. Of course, they contributed to uh, well-being of economy in the West, and the West was closing the eyes on how and where this money uh, came from. Do you, do you think this, this is finished now? Clearly, uh, the war in Ukraine is the dramatic change you were hoping for. The cost is too high. And of course, we were calling for these personal sanctions against Putin's assets, against uh, properties of his oligarch friends for many years. Good that it is finally happening, but so bad that it is happening at so much cost. Right. I want to ask you a last question. An investigation by Bellingcat, the insider and the BBC, discovered that in the days and months prior to his assassination back in 2015, the Russian opposition leader, leader Boris Nemtsov was actually followed by members of the same squad that would subsequently uh, followed and allegedly poisoned Alexei Navalny and that they belonged to the FSB, uh, the Russian security uh, services. Uh, I mean, uh, would you consider that this says a lot about Vladimir Putin and the way he deals with uh, those who he feels are dangerous opponents. First of all, I have to correct you because we don't speak about alleged poisoning of Alexei Navalny. Right. We speak about poisoning. It has been proven beyond reasonable doubt. So the fact that Alexei Navalny has been poisoned on Putin's order is as clear as 22 uh, two times two equals four. And the fact that the same squad has been tailing uh, Boris Nemtsov, who was a very prominent uh, opposition leader and an executive prime minister, is of course very important because it shows that Putin's killing machine, his uh, system of arbitrary killings of political opponents, opponents existed long time ago. At that time, when the world leaders were shaking hands with them, at that time when Putin tried to be a reputable and respectable member of G7 and G20, he was already killing political opponents. So it's not that he has gone crazy in the last two years. He always was.
Leonid Volkov, everyone, thank you very much uh, for being our guest here on the France 24 interview, and thank you for watching it. Stay tuned for more videos.
homicide for the accidental death of a patient due to a medical error. It's a scary place that we work in for a lot of reasons. The former nurse Redonda Bott seen immediately after the verdict, surrounded by crying nurses outside a Tennessee courtroom. Bott guilty of criminally negligent homicide and gross neglect of an impaired adult. She pleaded not guilty to all charges. Nurses are outraged here. Many speaking out after the decision. I'm terrified, but now I'm in a profession where, God forbid, I do make a mistake. The American Nursing Association saying it sets a dangerous precedent of criminalizing the honest reporting of mistakes, adding that some medical errors are inevitable. On Friday, a jury convicted her for injecting the paralyzing drug Bacaronium into a 75-year-old, Charlene Murphy, instead of the drug Versed, a sedative. Is this an indictment against the nursing profession and medical community? No, absolutely not. Uh, I found out very quickly that this was not about uh, a single mistake. The DA says there were at least 17 instances of, quote, gross neglect that led to Murphy's death. We had a jury trial, and on that jury were two health professionals, including a nurse. We don't prosecute nurses for making any mistakes, but if there is uh, gross neglect, then yeah, that person is going to be subject to prosecution. The AP reporting bot admitted to making several errors in court. Her lawyer, Peter Stryance, arguing Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Tennessee is partially responsible. Who is accountable and who is responsible in cases like this? There are really two kinds of errors that take place in healthcare. One are what I'll call culpable errors, meaning you're under the influence, you're not prepared. Then there are errors that happen because the system fails. Bott's lawyer says the system did fail due to a practice of overriding the hospital's electronic medical cabinet to access the drugs. Bott seen here furthering this claim last summer before the state's nursing board. Overriding was something we did as a part of our practice. 
every day. According to the DA, the Vanderbilt University Medical Center negotiated an out-of-court settlement with Murphy's family. It also fired Vaught, who lost her nursing license and declined to comment when contacted by NBC. We've heard from a lot of medical practitioners who say this sets a dangerous precedent. Anyone who assumes a duty of care over another person will be subject to prosecution if they cause harm due to gross neglect. That's not a precedent, that's the law. All right, Sinclair joins us now live here on set. So, Sinclair, are, are we talking about prison time here? And what is the family of that victim saying? Yeah, so we know sentencing will be May 13th. The AP says prison time could look like three to six years. But it's important that we center the voice of the family. They actually gave us a statement just a few hours ago, and they emphasized that they did not pursue charges against Ms. Vaught. And so that's an important distinction to make tonight. Bye.